This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Michael Mohammed Ahmed, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you for having me again. And I'd also like to say Salamu Alaikum, which means peace be upon you in the language of our ancestors. Yeah, Salamu Alaikum. My Arabic's not great, but I do understand just about everything. I can't tell you how excited I am to talk to you today. It's a very different book to the last time we spoke. Uh, but before we start talking about that, I'm going to introduce you. Michael Mohammed Ahmed is a writer, editor and community advocate. He founded Sweatshop Literacy Movement, which supports emerging writers from culturally diverse backgrounds in Western Sydney. His PhD thesis from Western Sydney University informed his previous novel, The Lebs, which was shortlisted for the Miles Franklin Award in 2019. He's here today to talk about his latest novel, The Other Half of You. It's also inspired by his experience as growing up Lebanese, Australian in Sydney. I'm already feeling a little bit emotional about this conversation, so forgive me. <laughs> but it is really heart-wrenching, beautiful book. It's so honest. I'm very moved to hear you say that. Thank you. Um, so maybe we can have a moving conversation today, inshallah. Yeah. Inshallah. <laughs> All right. Now, tell me about your experience. Tell me a little bit about you. Um, wh- how did you get to Australia? How um, Was it your parents that came here? Were you born here? Yeah. Um, I, so I will tell you, and um, I, know, I know you're interviewing me, me, but I would love to know, you know, a little bit about your story too, because I, I, I imagine there are some similarities. Definitely. Um, my mum and dad arrived in Australia in the 1970s, which is uh, quite a, you know, that's where a lot, a, a large percentage of Lebanese Australians, specifically Lebanese uh, Muslims, uh, migrated to the country. And, uh, you know, Peter Dutton in 2016 was saying how second-generation Lebanese Australian Muslims are the mistakes of the Fraser government. I mean, he's literally referring to the the Lebanese people who came in the 70s, including my parents, and then gave birth to people like me and my son, and my son you know. So... Um, he's a charming man, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, I, I, exactly. He's, um, he's our, he's our yeah. ally, isn't he? <laughs> Um, Off, <laughs> but, but um, so they come. They come in the nineteen in early nineteen seventies. My grandfather on my father's side comes first. He comes uh, two years before everyone else to save up money and then bring the rest of the family. So my grandfather came in nineteen sixty nine. And I was named after him. His, his name's Muhammad Ahmed. I'm, I'm named Muhammad Ahmed. And in the other half of you, the autobiographical version of myself, Benny Adam, his grandfather's named Benny Adam. So that's how those things parallel. Um, and then over the next two years, he has enough money to bring the eight children and his wife to Australia. Three of the children, uh, there was 11. I had 11 uh, aunties and uncles. The three had already passed away in Lebanon from measles. It was uh, that kind of um, condition where something like measles, uh, you, you know, you're going to lose uh, a quarter of your children to that. But then my grandfather literally drops dead six months later, six months after my family had arrived in Australia 
on my father's side, my grandfather drops dead. He has a, a, a massive heart attack in the living room while the kids were playing and um, he dies. He's, he's, he, was, he was 47 years old. And this doesn't mean much to anybody, but it means a lot to my little community. He was the first um, Muslim Alawite in the history of the world to die in Australia, to die on this land. Oh, wow. And so, uh, you know, he's, um, he's buried in Rookwood Cemetery. And uh, we regularly visit him. And I, I would like to share a story because this is a very sweet uh, story. His youngest brother uh, stayed in Lebanon and never came to Australia for 46 years. And two years ago, his youngest brother, my grandfather's youngest brother, came to Australia for the first time. And we went, we took him to the cemetery. And I remember my, my great uncle standing over my grandfather's grave and crying as, you know, weeping and telling all of us. I mean, he's half blind. He's got no teeth. You know, it's uh, when I look into his eyes, because his eyes are very, very dark. It's like looking into his soul. And I remember seeing him crying and saying, I promised myself that before I die, I would come here and visit my older brother's grave because he loved his oldest brother so much. Mm, that's a beautiful story, isn't it? Do you know, and that's one of the stories that we don't hear enough about the challenges of being a migrant, but about, you know, being separated from family. I mean, it's happening at the moment to my mum. Uh, She's from a family of nine and they're starting only now recently to die, but they haven't been able to, you know, attend each other's funerals or be with each other. And it absolutely breaks my heart. It really yeah, does. I mean, that disconnection from culture and language, uh, you know, because uh, you would know from the book that uh, Bani's interracial relationship with the white girl, there's all these like fantasies that the white family have that you know, their their white daughter is the one that's going to have to make all these compromises. She's going to be forced into converting into Islam. But I always have to remind white Australians that we actually make a lot more compromises. It's just so normalized that you don't notice it. So, for example, we just speak English and it's just taken for granted that I speak fluent English and that um, the language that I speak in Australia is the language of white people's ancestors Mm. and that I don't get the privilege of regularly getting to communicate in the language of my ancestors. And even our early little dialogue at the beginning of this interview, it demonstrates how we become disconnected. Like we don't have the strength in Arabic in the language um, that our, you know, that our... um, our older relatives had? Well, I guess for me, you know, my parents had a huge desire, my mother in particular, to, for us to assimilate, to be normal, to be accepted into the community. And she wasn't thinking about losing her own culture. She was thinking about providing a life for us. And that to me is, it's really powerful because when I think about my, my childhood, I think about how hard she tried to, to make us feel comfortable, and that breaks my heart. And she did it, and she did a great job. Six children, you know. Mm. She... We're six as well. Oh, yeah? Yeah. There you go. C- can I ask you, um, I mean, how Lebanese did you feel growing up? Did you feel like you had to kind of hide that aspect of your identity to stay safe? Yeah. So we, my parents came out, I think, earlier than your grandfather, and there was a butcher, a man called Antoine Andluffet. There was a butcher in Redfern. And he, uh, an amazing man from a part in Lebanon, uh, an area called Sarte, and he had this wonderful butcher that makes the best Lebanese sausages and kafte. But anyway, he had a room upstairs. I think it was one room and a bathroom, tiny. And he used to, anybody, people that came from his town, 
to Sydney, Australia, you could have that premise until you found your feet. Mm. So six children, just imagine this, Michael, six children and two adults in one room, one bathroom and one kitchen. Like there wasn't even bedrooms. But they are the happiest memories Mm. of my life. Until then, my father, my parents bought a corner shop and we ended up in Glebe. So... I don't remember hiding it because we went to school with falafel sandwiches. You know, I loved kafte on toasted bread and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But my mother, unlike a lot of the migrants around us at the time where they weren't allowed to go on school excursions because it was a fear of the unknown, you know, they weren't allowed to go have sleepovers. My mother was always pushing us out, you know, go do it, go enjoy it. My father was a little bit more hesitant, but my mother was like that. But when I became a teenager, I I embraced my culture less. I was more embarrassed about it. In primary school, I think it was just with me. But when I finished school and started in the workforce, I found it in a big way. I mean, our stories parallel so much. Um, You know, that idea of like just being crammed into these little spaces, like living in some kind of uh, experience of what looks like poverty, at least from the outside. And uh, you know, I remember growing up in in a house where you know there was twenty people in this small house in the mm. inner west in the mm. cities back before it was gentrified. Yeah, and um, you know, sharing a bed with my with my siblings I and shared, cousins. I yeah. shared a bed with my sister for years, and so it would, it would, every night, did you do this? Legs on one side, like she could have the right side, and then I could. <laughs> we had all those kinds of rules. So you know, like sleeping on the same, edge of the bed. Same. Um, you know, sleeping upside down. <laughs> yes. You know, head to toe. Um, staying up. I, I loved staying up all night and talking, and, and especially when cousins would come over. Mm-hmm. I want to add, though, and because obviously I write about this in the book, that, that you know, I, I love this kind of romantic memory we have. There were also the challenges. You know, I, I try to hint at certain experiences that were really toxic in, in, in those kind of really difficult spaces because um, we didn't have those privileges growing up um, that we a lot of people take for granted. Yeah. yeah, And so, like, my cousins, you know, putting teenage bo- grown-up teenage boys who were, to put it politely, curious about their bodies – at a time and putting them next to children because you just don't have the space, it also becomes quite dangerous in some ways. And so um, just talking about this in the frame uh, in relation to, to my writing and, and to writing in general, I try to do both. I try to talk about the beauty and the, and the poetry of that experience of being you know, a first and second generation working class or welfare migrant um, while at the same time not, not sugarcoating some of the really harsh realities of that experience. Let me tell you a a memory that I have. So we lived in Glebe and my mother loved the arts. She loved film. She, you know, she's got dementia at the moment and uh, things are very tough for her. But um, she was so adventurous. She really wanted to explore this city. So we used to walk from Glebe to the opera house most days. She'd pack a picnic because, you know, you couldn't afford to buy food out. And one time we must have all been complaining and I can't remember why she decided to get the bus. So the six kids and the one adult and we were going to get the bus. And she stopped that bus, you know, like we're at the bus stop. And for some reason we didn't get on. And, you know, and I said, I remember this so clearly, why why, why weren't we on this bus? And my mum said, oh, because there was no room. The bus is full and we're just going to have to walk. Well, no, that wasn't the case. My sister later told me he said, no wogs on the bus. Mm, so yeah. there's some of those memories. Isn't it insane that like, because my dad tells stories like that and I just find it insane because I just feel like, you know, we're at this modern, at the modern, this modern moment, like this, this moment in time, 
uh, racism is so microaggressive and it's mm. so subtle. But like just hearing this era where like people could just straight up look at you and say no wogs or, you mm. know, go back to where you came. Like that just explicit in your face racism, you know. And I think about that man on the bus and I think how could he have turned away five, six little kids, you know. You know, did he not look at us and just think we're just children? I often think about that. Well, I, I mean, I want to respond to that because I've, I feel like that's the conversation we're having right now about Palestine and the lack of humanity. Mm. I don't know if you saw the, uh, Randa Abdul Fattah on Q&A the other day, but, you know, the one of the, the audience questions was about, you know, it was, a, it was an Israeli a pro-Israeli agendaed question. And the question was framed around this woman, the, the person who asked the question was a woman in the audience who was who was sulking about her Israeli son who lives in Israel and how they were frightened of the Hamas rockets and the family dog was frightened. And Randa had to remind this audience member that there are literally Palestinian children being slaughtered and it always feels like sometimes the humanity of Arabs, of Arab children is given less value than the integrity of a dog, you Mm. know? And so, um, you know, you're asking, making that point on like, how could he turn away six children? I feel like time and time again, we are reminded of the lack of humanity we're given. And I want to, I want to point out that in writing this book, a big part of it for me was trying to reclaim our humanity, uh, the humanity of our children and the humanity of parents, of fathers and mothers. Mm. As Arabs and, and and as Muslims as well. I just I, I want to just touch a little bit on Palestine. Again, it goes back to my memory of being, and I can't remember whether it was year eight or year nine, and I read about the Holocaust. We were being taught of the Holocaust, about what the Germans did to the Jews in the Second World War. And I remember being so horrified. Like, my biggest question every day was, and I couldn't, it wouldn't leave my head, where was the rest of the world? Where was the rest of the world that this atrocity happened? And now, where is the rest of the world? And that doesn't leave me every day. The Palestinians, it's genocide and it's ethnic cleansing. Where is the rest of the world? I mean, it's, it's, I mean one of the most heartbreaking aspects of this is the way in which the Holocaust has been weaponized as justification for the crimes committed against the Palestinians because the struggle that uh, in, uh, Jewish people in Europe experienced in World War II is so similar to the experience that Palestinians yeah. are experiencing now. And there's a very important book called The Holocaust Industry by uh, a, a Jewish scholar named Norman Finkelstein. His family were Holocaust survivors. And the idea of the Holocaust industry is the way in which the Holocaust has been manipulated and used to, to back a very... Uh, fascist, Zionist, and pro-Israeli agenda. And I think one of the, the most beautiful things, because I was at the protests on the weekend with my son, actually. Oh, um, beautiful. You know, and he, and he was in his Muslim garb, you know, his little prayer yeah. cap and his gown. And uh, he's, uh, just for the audience who probably don't, he's five. So he's very young and he's, he's becoming exposed to this at a very young age, which is nice for me because it wasn't something I was exposed to. But, you know, it was just so beautiful to see the Palestinian and the Arab solidarity with the Jewish community. Mm. And watching our communities come together against fascism Mm. and against genocide and ethnic cleansing. Mm. And that dialogue about not conflating anti-Semitism with anti-Zionism is so long overdue. Mm. Absolutely. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Tell me about your growing up. Like, tell me how you lived with your identity growing up. Um... I uh, grew up in uh, Alexandria first. So not Alexandria in Egypt. Some people think I'm in <laughs> Egypt, but Alexandria in the cities in the West. And this is when it was kind of seen as an ethnic slum. I mean, you, you talk about growing up in Glebe. So, ethnic slum. Yeah, it was, yeah. you know, it was when it was when the inner West was, the Western suburbs. So that's, that's where right. we started. Yeah. Um, you know, came into a very densely populated home. There was 20 members in this small five-bedroom. You know, the, the houses in, in the inner West are pretty tight. And so a bedroom where I, I shared it with four siblings and two cousins, for example. It was uh, it was very difficult because we were a minority, very consciously Lebanese, and we lived as a, like a very Lebanese family, spoke Arabic, uh, Arabic food, participated in uh, Muslim culture to 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 the extent that we could. Don't eat pig meat, for example. And uh, but at school, it was uh, the the dominant cultural group were working class white kids, and then there was a small percentage of in, uh, indigenous kids as well. And I remember it was so common for me in my day to day interactions to be called a Lebanese prick. I remember being called a Lebanese prick. I mean, you know, you hear other uh, Arabs talk about being called things like the sand n word. I didn't I didn't hear that uh, much growing up. I mainly heard Lebanese prick and things like go back to where you came from. And then and then by the time I was ten years old, my family I talk about our second migration, we migrated to the western suburbs. We moved, all of us moved from the inner west to the western suburbs. This is when uh, Sydney's inner west was going through an aggressive period of gentrification. And so you could sell your house, your poor you know, ethnic house in Sydney's inner west to probably a white middle class family and then go and live in the western suburbs and have four or five houses. And that's what my grandmother did. She sold the house and bought all of her sons these properties uh, within one or two streets away from each other. And things changed very quickly when we were in Lakemba. Um, Lakemba was so heavily dominated by Lebanese people that we called it Lebkemba. <laughs> And um, we, I remember that first year, like it was so radical. Like we, our language began to improve, our Arabic language. We, we began to participate more in, in Muslim culture. I remember the first year that I moved to Lakemba, 10 years old, was when I started fasting, for example. It was so strange being in a school where all the kids looked like you and spoke like you and had the same customs and traditions at home. And so our, the, the, the transformative experience of just growing up in a suburb in Australia that was multiracial and specifically represented your cultural background and ethnicity ethnicity was probably the most significant cultural shift in my entire life. Mm. Do you know, we're very similar. I mean, probably not the same, but my parents sold in Glebe and we went to Marrickville. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's where all my cousins live. <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> yeah. Right. yeah. So that's where we went. That's where we grew up. The problem was we still went to school in Glebe. I mean, I loved my schooling, but you know, it was a bit different. It was still we, you know, it's still very white. And I, I, I want people to hear this. I feel that my parents gave us such a fabulous, privileged life, and I feel very privileged and very lucky. And that's why I think it's important for us to tell our story because. Often we're not heard. I don't know. If, do you do you follow Jan Fran? Uh, yeah, I, I love Jan Fran. I consider so, her a sister. Oh, I love her so much. I don't know her. I just love her through social media. You, 
I gotta say, I strongly recommend because her book's coming out of Middle East and appearance. Oh, I'll um, have her in. I think you should definitely have her in and talk <laughs> oh, to her. Oh, I Jan, will track her down. I mean, what I love about people like Jan is they really, really use their platform without pulling any punches yeah. to transform what we consider to be quintessentially Australian. And she does it with lovely humour and, you know, I just love it. But anyway, the other day she was talking about Channel 9 and, and how everybody was white and, do you know, I stopped watching free air television like 10, 15 years ago for that reason and only recently I was at my mum's and she was watching Channel 9 News maybe a couple of weeks ago before Jam made this statement and I just noticed that everybody on the news had blonde hair. Every single person looks so similar. And I sent a text to a friend of mine and I said, I think Channel 9 didn't get the diversity memo. And this it, is what we're up against. We don't see yeah. people like us. It's shameful because um, it when is. you walk on the streets of Sydney, yeah. um, you know, our country looks like a bag of Skittles. But yeah. then when it comes to literature, when it comes to uh, film and television, when it comes to radio, it's incredibly white. And that's the, that's not just the national image we create. It's the, it's the international image. You know, I, I work with so many students from like New York University who are visiting students and the to- they tell me the first thing they're shocked to discover when they get to Australia is how multiracial we are as a society because the, the, the image that we create is this kind of white Australian construct, this white white nation fantasy, um, Professor Gasson Haj refers to it as. And I, I feel like it's such an exciting time because there are so many incredible writers of colour, Indigenous writers, Arab and Muslim writers who are really transforming the image of Australia and really pushing the boundaries of what we imagine when we say Australia. Mm, mm. So you finish school and you're is this right? You're the first person in your family to get a formal education, to go to university? Yeah, right? so let's uh, rewind because yeah. I, we, we, you, would have, you, would, you know this better than anybody. I mean, my experience at high school was traumatic, to say the least. You know, I went to Punchbowl mm-hmm. Boys High School in the late 90s and early 2000s. Tra- Punchbowl now is so different. I was there mm-hmm. recently um, for a a TV program, an ABC TV program that's airing later this year about Australian writers and they got me in to, to go back to my old school. Um, by the way, I should, I should uh, let uh, everybody know that um, the show is being hosted by the wonderful Claudia Carvin and it'll, oh, be, I love it'll be aired around November this year. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> and so, but it was so interesting to go back to Punchbowl because what happened was, it was two things. Firstly, the kids came up to me and said, uh, sir, what's this for? Is it positive or negative? It's so sad that uh. those kids are so used to being demonised that when they see cameras in their school, they're not sure what the, what the, what the narrative is going to be about them. Um, but the other thing I discovered that was gorgeous is like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hanging out with these boys, these little hipster Muslim Arabs. And, you know, like literally young boys who are 14 years old named Muhammad are coming out, mm. identifying as queer, as Loud and um, proud. LGBTIQ. Um, and, you know, their, their, their best mate next to them, whose name is Ali, you know, he's this big, hairy guy who's, you know, like a staunch heterosexual boy. I'm like, bro, what do you think of your your best friend coming out? He's like, I don't care. Yeah. And that is so incredible that over the 20 years, because the, the, the Punchbowl Boys I went to was surrounded by barbed wires and cameras. If a young boy was identifying as a member of the LGBTIQ community, he would have literally been killed. Mm. I saw people in my classroom literally get stabbed in the head because, you know, somebody stole someone's phone. Uh, we were regularly in the news being demonized as sexual predators, as, as gang rapists, as drug dealers, drive-by shooters, terrorist conspirators. And so that's, that was my high school experience. Coming out of that, and going to university was uh, incredibly important for me and my family because the odds were so heavily stacked against us. 
And it's so interesting because I turned that experience into my success. You know, um, the, the Lebs, as you pointed out, was shortlisted for the Miles Franklin. It uh, won a Premier's uh, Literary Award. And, um, and you know, it, it, it was leaning into that experience and telling that story that actually empowered it. me. And owning it. And owning, owning up to it. it. Yeah. 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 That empowered me. So... When I say when I say I'm the first in my family to go to university, I don't just mean, and this is really sad, I don't just mean the first in my family of, you know, six siblings, mum and dad. I mean literally in the entire Ahmed family, the hundreds of Arabs who came from Lebanon to Australia and set up their lives here, who have the last name Ahmed in my extended family. I was the very first among them to go to university. My mum and uh, dad were illiterate. They jump, dropped out of high school. You know you know the story, the mums have to go and get married mm-hmm. and have kids. The fathers have to go and work in the in the field and, and, and make money to support the family. And so there was a, a period of illiteracy that went on for several decades. And I was the first to break out of this. And I, what I think is interesting is um, not first in my family to go to university, then also first in the family to complete a postgraduate study, and then first in the family to receive a doctorate. And it's been an incredible um, period of pride. But there's something I want to share with you, which is interesting. There's, it's such a contradictory experience for my family. And, and when we talk about the book, you know, we'll get into this. But because on the one hand, they're so proud, you know, our, our boy did this, our son, our child um, has accomplished this and has represented our community and our family in a very good way. But I tend to use my education mainly to undermine all the horrible and stupid things they believe. Mm-hmm. And so I, um, for them, it's a contradictory experience where on the one hand, they're proud of me, but on the other hand, they're like, but why does he come home with these horrible ideas about, mm-hmm. you know, about sex and about gender and about sexuality? and about race um, and why does he you know corrupt our, cho- our, 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 our other children's minds and our grandchildren's minds with this nonsense and so it's been an interesting journey with my family yeah yeah I mean as we said the lebs are just so powerful uh, raw and very much um, I found it very very confronting and then we come to this novel completely different uh, semi-autobiographical uh, the other half of you tender tender. I mean, I'll cry. Talk to me about where this came from. Well, you're saying the word tender. And I really think if there's something that's going to mellow out a hyper-masculine, you know, testosterone-fueled teenage Arab-Australian Muslim boy from Punchbowl, it's fatherhood. It's literally, literally seeing your child come out of his mother, you know, come out between his mother's legs, you know. And I remember the day that he was born. Um, you know, I, I don't want to give away too much of the story, but uh, our journey to, to bring him into the world, uh, which is what the book's about, it's about the journey, was a very tough one because Khalil's mum is not from the tribe. She's not uh, Lebanese, not Muslim, not Alawite. And so there was a huge war, which is what the book's about for us to be together. It was the, it's, it's, it's my kind of modern-day Romeo and Juliet, modern-day Leila and Majnun. Um, in this book. And so I remember the day he was born and I write this, you know, literally on the first page. He he comes out of his mum uh, and he's, he's almost literally got my face. It was like looking into a mirror. And I remember being thinking like, this is my face coming out of this woman, you know? And in that way, we became a trinity. Like the three of us became connected, me, Khalil and Jane, uh, Khalil's mum, became connected for eternity through this interaction that was playing out. And I remember when I would look at his face in the hospital room, the minute he was born, 
I remember the tears flowing. They were just falling out of my eyes, but but not almost like my soul was falling out of my eyes because I don't remember feeling sad or happy. Or they would just come out. They would just fall out. And if I just looked away, even for a second, the tears would stop. It's just when I looked at his face, the tears would just fall out. And I just remember feeling this very strong cosmic energy. Um, and, you know, I've got to say, because... Uh, the, the, well, probably one of the most famous radical staunch atheists that ever lived was Christopher Hitchens. And I remember even Christopher Hitchens uh, used to talk about how if there's one moment in your life, whether you're an atheist or a theist, where you might be kind of convinced that there's a higher power, it's that moment when your children are born because there's just so much power in, that, in, that, in, that, in those couple of seconds. Um, and I remember just feeling very overcome by that. And it was the moment I said, I'm going to write this book. And I want to tell you th- uh, that when I, that night, you know, Jane's asleep in the hospital bed and I was literally holding my son, uh, you know, uh, sh- by the way, anyone who's had children knows that this is a, this is not a long, it's not like Jane's going to sleep through the whole night. Like I'm talking like she's going to get 15 or 20 minutes of sleep. <laughs> um, and I'm holding him for those 15 or 20 minutes before he starts crying because he, he needs to be fed. And I remember just holding him in these wee hours of the night in the hospital and literally beginning to write the first chapters of this book on my phone. And so I remember the book began and my journey in writing this book as the kind of conclusion to the, to the, 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 the story of the House of Adam and um, my entrance into fatherhood were, were all happening at the same time. Mm, beautiful, beautiful story. Thank you for sharing that. What do you hope for him? For my son. Mm. Um, well, you know, in the book, I, I, I name him, like, so you, you mentioned that it's autobiographical fiction. It's uh, semi-autobiographical. And so um, my autobiographical self is called Benny Adam. Um, and, and I do insist that it's a work of fiction. But, but, but the boy's name, Khalil, is exactly his name. I didn't, I didn't fictionalize Khalil's uh, presence in the, in the book because it's, it's written very much in the second person, which is a new form for me to experiment with. I very much wanted to communicate to him. And I took inspiration from, you know, uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates' book, Between the World and Me, where he communicates to his son. Mm. And I think what a lot of fathers of color at this modern, at this moment in time, in the, in the, in the modern era are doing is trying to talk to their children about how they're going to navigate the world that they're growing up in, a world where there will be beautiful moments, but there will also be uh, moments of them having to deal with things like racism Mm -hmm. and white supremacy. And we're seeing how serious this problem is. Uh, Two years ago in 2019, uh, a year after we actually got the uh, privilege to meet one another, the the Christchurch massacre happened and an Australian-born white supremacist went into a mosque and slaughtered 51 Muslims peacefully conducting their Friday prayers. I take my son to the mosque on Fridays. So this was a very confronting moment for me and a a very heartbreaking moment. Um, And so I, I... what I hope for him, and part of the reason why I wrote the book is because I wanted to help him prepare for the world that he has to uh, inherit, both the positives and the negatives. And, you know, why did we name him Khalil? Uh, my grandfather um, is named Khalil. Uh, my mother, that's my mother's father. And um, it was very important for us to, to, for Khalil to inherit somebody in our family. And, and, and as you would know from reading the book, my favorite writer and the writer who very much inspired me as a Lebanese Australian was Khalil Gibran. And so we also named him Khalil after the, the great poet. And, you know, there's a very good chance that my Khalil breaks my heart and becomes a mathematician. <laughs> but, but I hope that he kind of, you know, t- takes on the mantle of, the, could be of a scientist. living up the, yeah, <laughs> but living up to that great um, tradition of the, of the Arab poet, and he has the kind of right name for that. Yeah, he does. You know, it's been wonderful chatting with you. Um, and 
honestly, I wish you all the best. You do such great work, not even in writing. Just to tell me a little bit about what you do with the Western Sydney Writers. Is that what it's called? Yeah, the Western Sydney Literacy Movement, which yes. is, I founded uh, in 2013. It's called Sweatshop. Thank you for asking about that. And we were talking a little bit about Palestine. And so um, one of the things we're doing at the moment is a fundraiser for Palestinian Australian-Palestinian charities like Olive Kids and APAN. And we're donating all of the profits from our latest anthology, uh, which is called Racism. Uh, stories on fee, hate and bigotry to those charities. Uh, Sweatshop is a literacy movement devoted to empowering minorities, people of colour, people from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds, Indigenous people through reading, writing and critical thinking. And, um, you know, I, I've just written three novels, uh, The Tribe, The Lebs and now The Other Half of You. And I, I get asked a lot, what am I, what, what's, my, what's my plan next? And I'm really excited to be able to say that right now, now that I've finished this journey with these three novels, I, I really want to put my energy into supporting the writers that have grown up with me and under me uh, as my students and mm-hmm. as my mentees. There are so many incredible stories that have been created by diverse writers in Australia. Mm. The one that I'm really looking forward to uh, is uh, The Mother Wound by Amani Haydor, which will be out in a few weeks. And uh, Amani and I have been collaborating for several years. I, I want to take this opportunity to talk about The Mother Wound because if my book is about Arab and Muslim fatherhood, this book is about Arab and Muslim motherhood. And uh, the reason it's so important uh, is because Amani's story, her memoir, is about uh, her mother who tragically lost her life to domestic violence. And Amani's story is in so many ways, to me, probably the most important story we're going to read this year. And so uh, I'm, I'm really excited about using the platform that I have to celebrate not just my achievements, but the achievements of the incredible writers I've been working with. Uh, Amani uh, is someone, uh, there's also Shirley Lee, who's just signed with the Firm Press, who's a Vietnamese-Australian writer. Sarah Soleh, who's a, a prominent Palestinian-Australian writer. Do you know, we might come out and pay you a little visit. You are so welcome. Can we come out? Absolutely. You should totally come out, meet the writers. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? Like, because, you know, like just talking about Lebanese hospitality, you're talking about Antun feeding, um, being so generous. Uh, You know, we would love to have you come out, have some Lebanese sweets, have lunch with us and and meet the crew. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to do that. For anyone that's interested, sorry, I'm going to do a shameless plug. Yeah, Um, go on. Jump on the Sweatshop website, sweatshop.ws. All of our anthologies and all of our books on the website are produced 100% by Indigenous people and people of colour. All the profits go back to generating and supporting the next generation of writers. And so, you know, anyone that wants to find out more about Sweatshop can can visit us via our website. You inspire me, Michael, on every level. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. And, you know, um, I will say that uh, uh, I'm also really inspired and and energised. It's very rare that I get to speak to people who have such a similar... I mean, you know, I don't want to essentialise the experience of being uh, Lebanese. We are so different and our experiences are so different. But it's still just some kind of nice sense of solidarity and familiarity when we get to talk to each other. Absolutely. And we cut out that white gaze and we just get straight to to um, the essence of our um, of our of our experiences. Yeah, I feel real connection. Thank you. Thank you too. And also, I'll say salamu alaikum. <laughs> yes, I don't know how to respond to that, but thank you. <laughs> if you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, 
join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.